welcome to this Motorsport Magazine podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz. What do you think of when someone says the word used, old-fashioned, out of tune, a bit scratched, something past its best? Chances are you're not thinking of a Mercedes-Benz, and certainly not one of the latest models. Think Mercedes-Benz approved used, suddenly there's a lot more meaning to that little word. Visit your local retailer to find your used car today, and you'll see what I mean. I like the way you work here. Mercedes-Benz approved used. Used, but not what you're used to. Now, you may have noticed some different surroundings here today. We're actually at the Williams Formula One factory, um, and we're here with two very special guests. We're here with Jonathan Williams and Dickie Stanford. Now, let me get this right. Jonathan, you run Williams Heritage. Is, is your job title the, the, the captain of, the commander of Williams Heritage? The, tell me your job title. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was captain. That'd be that'd be quite. Um, actually, I think I think it may now be captain from captain. here on in. So okay, that one's so on we you. Have the captain. Uh, Dickie Titt, and you're the general manager. Is that that's correct? correct? Right. Yes. Okay. And we run it together is sort of the best way to say it because yeah. uh, I'd be a bit lost if I'm honest without. <laughs> <No. laughs> I don't know which way the spanners go. Well, yeah. there we go. This is this is a great place to start, to be honest, because we're we're here not necessarily to talk about um, Formula One 2018. We're actually here to talk about Williams Heritage. Now, Williams Heritage had a huge amount of activity last year due to due to the anniversary. But I wonder if you guys can tell me in your own words, what why does Williams Heritage exist, and what are your plans going forward? Me? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> The captain, uh, the captain <laughs> indeed. Wing, wing commander, maybe. Yeah. Wing commander, okay. We'll get on to the motor racing in a minute. Uh, well, I mean, uh, in a way, for quite a while, Williams Heritage has existed. There has been, pretty much going back to the 1980s, a conscious effort to collect and catalogue what we do with the number of racing cars that we cycle through uh, a season, uh, the sort of lifespan of a design, for example. But in terms of where we are right here, right now, it very much has its origins in uh, the arrival of Mike O'Driscoll as our group CEO in 2013. Uh, somebody who has a great passion and knowledge for heritage, automotive heritage in general, given his background, and therefore he had an appreciation of what we had as an archive here. So with his strategist, he began to sort of create and structure a group around us, meaning sort of that we now align with Formula One and Advanced Engineering as an operational group within the Williams family, and therefore we have objectives, we have targets. So essentially, what we've done in that time is we've taken, or we've rather, we've added a commercial approach to those activities. So the understanding, the archiving, the cataloging of the cars, the components, anything that cycles out of F1 at the end of a season these days comes to us and we therefore have the responsibility to identify how we're going to apply that hardware going forward to preserve it down the decades for the heritage of this company, but also to commercially deliver our targets by developing and engaging with a client base to try and see these cars continue to have a, a life on track beyond the time that we race them. Sure, and, and Dickie, how many years did you spend with the, with the Formula One team? I joined in 1985, January 85, yeah. uh, through to 2013. You don't look like you're retired, though. <laughs> 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 t t tell me why you're not retired. <laughs> um, 
Well, this opportunity came up and uh, it was, I thought it was a pretty good opportunity. And uh, yeah, I've gone, let's say, back on the spanners as, as well yeah. as uh, doing some of the paperwork, but um, trying to get some of the, the cars out that, 14B, for instance, from yeah. last year, that was a, a very big challenge. Yeah. But it proves that uh, we can do it. Now, now, Simon, Simon Aaron's here, our, our features editor, as is uh, Jack Phillips, who's our digital editor. Simon, you were a Formula One journalist for, for many, many years, and obviously you still follow the sport closely. Uh, impossible question, maybe, but can you summarise what Williams Grand Prix is and, and what it means to, to the sport, to Formula One? I mean, I think it's a... It's a wonderful rags to riches story isn't it it's um that's how i've always felt about it mum i first started reading the weekly papers when i was i guess 11 or 12 years old when jonathan's father frank was um sort of swapping drivers every week with a in a series of largely uncompetitive cars i mean they'd occasionally pop up somewhere near the front but um then the whole thing kind of folded in on itself and he started again and then from there um I mean, the the rise from the time that Frank and Patrick Head got together, uh, podium finishes in 78, race win in 79. I was at Silverstone that day. I'm sure you probably were as well. Or, or were you too young? Are you too young? Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm told I wasn't. Oh, right. Okay. I was at Zandvoort in 79. That's, that, that's sort of the first race yeah. I can remember being trackside for a victory. But I was told that we probably would have been in the way for Silverstone 79. So I don't believe we were there. But I mean, I, I, was, I was standing at Beckett's for that one. And... Um, just the reaction when I mean the the, the groans of disappointment when Land Jones leading car packed up and then the reaction when Clay Regazzoni took the flag and the I mean the track invasion was part and parcel of it back then post race. But um it just you could I can still feel it now actually. I mean the the affection that the whole place felt. Um and it, you could kind of tell that it was the start of something big and I mean obviously the what subsequently happened um, during the 1980s, Honda, Renault, and the 90s, succession of world titles, everything, everyone, that's the familiar part of the tale that everyone knows. But it, it's those early days and the kind of, the complete reversal in, 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 the, in status, if you like, from Frank Williams racing cars being at the back of the grid most of the time to Williams Grand Prix engineering, as it was then, being at the front of the grid for most of the time and a very long time. And it was just a really heartwarming. It was a really. It was a bit like Hesketh in some ways, but on yeah, a bigger scale. Of course, it, was yeah. a heart, it was a heartwarming UK success story. And it was it was sixty nine, right? Frank Williams Racing Cars was was sixty nine, but the cars within Heritage start seventy eight. Am I my, my, So t tell me what's why why is there a why is there a gap? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well. My father's first entries in Formula One were in 1969. Yeah. So he's, he's beginning He's beginning to, you can tell it's getting his attention that we're, what, a year away from the 50th anniversary sure. of that. And I think, added to which, several years ago, he surpassed Enzo Ferrari for the man to have entered. Uh, I mean, simply nobody is, has entered as a team principal and owner more Grand Prix than my father has. But I think as sort of the team evolved through the 1970s in various guises to the point that it became Wolf Williams in 1976 with the FW05, at the end of that year, the team was largely 
taken over by Walter Wolf, and my father was kept in employment but moved outside of racing activities. Peter Waugh joined mm. at the same time as Jody Schechter for 1977. Uh, my father was moved away from team management into more personal affairs for Walter Wolf, and uh, the Williams name was actually dropped. It became Wolf Racing, and of course they yeah. won their first Grand Prix under that banner in Argentina, 77. And I think a combination of those things made my father feel a little bit homesick. Yeah. So Williams Grand Prix Engineering was formed early into 77, running a customer march, single car for Patrick Neve. So that's really the point at which we uh, start the history for this team and sure. therefore Williams Heritage. That's the launch point. We don't uh, own the march, but we do have FW06s onwards, which is the first car to yeah. be designed under the partnership that was my father and Patrick, and which really is also a cornerstone to why Williams is 1977 onwards, hence 40 years last year, because it's, in my father's eyes, his partnership with Patrick is the single most important event in his working life. Without Patrick, he believes that we wouldn't be here. So yeah. that's why we are where we are as a starting point. And, and Dickie, bef before you, you joined the team, what, what was your impression of Williams from, from an outsider's perspective, but also somebody with experience in or a fan, being a fan of motorsport and experience in racing? Well, I, I was actually, let's say, in Formula 3 and Formula 2 before I came here. And mm. um, I actually tried to get a job at Williams in 1983. I just turned up on the doorstep. Really? I literally just really? turned up on the doorstep <laughs> at, in the old, uh, the old factory in Station Road. The original yep, factory. the carpet factory. Um, <laughs> knocked on the door and Peter Collins gave me an hour's interview. Really? Um, he's a great he, guy. He's, he, he's a he, great guy. He gave me an hour's interview. He said, go away, get Formula 2 experience, which I did. Um, I did two years in Formula 2 with the Route Hondas mm. and then literally walked into a job here. Um, yeah. But for me at, at the time, it was the team to be with. Right. You know, So it was, let's say, I was just passing Didcot one day and I'll give it a shot. Just literally walked up to the door, knocked on the door and got an hour's interview, which at the time I thought was amazing. I, I yeah. didn't even expect to get past the front door. Yeah, that's, that's remarkable, isn't it? And, it's, uh, it's a great story. And, and you mentioned Peter, um, both of you yeah. there. Give, give, me your, give me your thoughts on Peter. I mean, absolutely you know, instrumental in, <laughs> yeah. in, in you taking your career and somebody you, knew, you, know, you know well. So yeah. yeah, I got a lot of affection for him. He's, he's a good friend. I'd, I mean, I guess I've been privileged to have grown up around so many great racing people but struggle actually to sort of put somebody that I've learned so much from about racing beyond him I just just connect with him in conversation very very well and just had just learned so much from about sort of how you do it from a driver's point of view a team point of view he's just a great passionate knowledgeable racer and when he and I are on the phone these days they're like two-hour phone conversations <laughs> just talk 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 he's, he's a great Sounds guy fabulous yeah, yeah. Okay, let, let, let's talk about um, the, the Williams heritage in, in number. So, can you give me some of the top numbers? How many cars have How many cars have, have you got? How many cars do you look after? Hundred and thirty. Hundred and thirty cars on cars. our books. About that. Okay. Um, five, six customer cars uh -huh. that we service for the customers. Yeah. Um, and then there's all the cars that we get out of the museum to get back into running cars. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you. Most of the cars at Donington belong to Williams Heritage or of the Williams yeah. uh, Bewley and then a few other 
um, private museums. Yeah. And before there was a centre of gravity around William's heritage, where were the cars? What, what was the... Uh, a similar, I mean, probably quite similar to what Dickie just described. I, I, I mean, we've always had... Uh, we've always sort of had a good understanding with several yeah. museums, mostly Donington, you house, as Dickie said, multiple cars of ours, and then other, I mean, as Dickie said, Bewley, the David Coulthard Museum, uh, the DAF Museum, I believe, have the CVT car. So quite a few things like that. And then in our own storage, which in turn, over the decades, has evolved to literally just empty corners of the factory through now to a proper bonded warehouse on site where we mm. keep all of the uh, the cars beyond our immediate purposes so uh th that really hasn't much changed i mean when we when we first started williams touring car engineering for renault in the 1990s the factory we leased at didcot across the road from the f1 site was huge that all of the redundant f1 cars ended up in there which the touring car people didn't like it meant their trucks had to be parked outside i think we spotted a an inside truck park and took that over for redundant formula one cars the touring car trucks did end up outside outside despite the fact team management planned for that not to be the case when you two come to work in the morning do you regard this as a museum or a toy shop uh that's a difficult question, actually. I'm not usually it's awake when I arrive. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, don't really just, don't really just like. <laughs> no, I am. I am. Uh, don't actually class it as a museum. Yeah. Um, you know, it I is a great it's, space. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a great yeah. place to come. It's great you know, that it kind of defines yeah. categorisation. There's always something different. Yeah. To be working on, you know, the mm. cars span from seventy, let's say seventy-eight up to two thousand fourteen. Yeah. Um, and the earlier cars, it's let's say we don't have so many spares for those, but we still have lots. And it's just going back through the original um, parts list and then the drawings, and then going to the racks to see whether we still have the stuff. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Because when a Formula One car is designed, it's it's the, the designers know that this is a Mayfly. This will, this will have a year maybe maybe two from from the early days so therefore long-term part supply is not <laughs> is not part of the equation is it so well the odor of the car yeah let's say the easy the engineering you know right. compared with the the modern stuff so you know like for the the 08 that we're working on at the moment the 08c i think there was five different types of suspension for that wide track narrow track long wheelbase short wheelbase right. um so we only tend to keep one type you know we don't keep everything you know we just don't have the room yeah. but then as, as you come on through the years the spares get less because you didn't change so much you know everything's designed in the drawing office it looked gone are the days when you would take a car with five different types of suspension to a circuit and test it so it's a bit easier to control all the spares nowadays sure Whereas uh, the 08s and the 7s, they, they changed stuff every single race. And it wasn't just like a, let's say in the modern day where you, you make things smaller, lighter. Yeah. You know, this, this was a major change. It was a whole suspension change. Yeah. So. And, and the flip side, of course, is the earlier cars, the 7s and 8s, had a turnkey Cosworth in the back. And as we get, as we get more, and I know I've had this conversation yeah. with you before, but um, as you come into the modern more modern age and you've got an FW18 which has got I think runs on MS-DOS and then you've got cars running on Windows 3.1, Windows 95, Windows 98 and you've got to try and maintain the software for all of those things. 
I mean, have you have you got a you've got a full co- working collection of laptops to suit each car? Yeah, yeah. Normally we we have a lot laptop per car, um, and like you say, you know, the fourteen B, the fifteen, all run on MS DOS. Um, that's not how can I put it a big deal because now you can go and take a brand new laptop and you can get it converted to MS DOS. But it's things like the RAM cards and everything. You know, okay. we didn't pick the the standard RAM card because it's Formula One. You pick the most obscure thing that you could, <laughs> and now nobody makes them anymore. <laughs> so these these are the difficult, let's say, the difficult things. We we try and keep everything period. We can modify what we call the VCM, which where you take all your readings from and controls the active ride. We can modify it where we can plug a laptop into it. But we're trying not to do that. We're trying to keep everything original. You know, MS-DOS, special RAM cards. You know, that's part of the heritage, you know. So, but if if it comes to it, yes, then we can modify stuff. Over over the last few years or so, how how many cars have have run per year? And and do do you ever have a kind of a figure in mind that you would like, say, five or six cars to be active per year? Uh, I'd say for our our own purposes when mm. we wish to present ourselves at a regular event such as Goodwood for the Festival of Speed or what was the case at our 40th anniversary at Silverstone for our purposes we'd probably keep sorry, we'd probably look to bring online a maximum of two mm-hmm. because in terms of having them in the loop as we call it to make sure that they're up to date they're compliant with uh, safety regulations there's quite a bit of cost and time to that yeah. and then beyond that really a relatively open canvas in terms of what our clients present to us so yeah. I think last year we had uh, I mean we're still quite in in the infancy on the commercial side of this really only just entering the fourth year now but it's really beginning to take off so over this winter we've added quite a few more clients with operational cars so the programs for those will will keep us busy sure. but I mean I think as, as Dickie said up to about six potentially coming right. coming online quite soon in terms of clients cars so and that's potentially global. I mean, right. uh, the first the first sort of experience from our side of it was pretty much all based in the US last year. So you had about four trips out to the US, I think. Yeah, that's correct. FW13B. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What, what's what's the cut off, cut off for when the average historic racing team could run a Formula One car? I would say ERS. Right. Because you can run a Kurs car without the battery, but with the ERS car the main, let's say, battery pack is the electronics for the car. Now, it's going to be interesting in a few years' time when you come around to run the ERS cars. Do people still have the batteries? Are they still good? Mm. Um, you know, we've, we've had Mercedes Heritage down here, and that was one of the questions. They, they came to ask us how we run Heritage. And one of the questions I asked them, as obviously their cars are newer than ours, what are you going to do about your ERS and that? And there was this like blank look. Uh, <laughs> haven't thought of that. Um, so they they, they were going to well, go back and see. You would tell yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but we can, let's say, without any problems, we can run up to the Renault V8s. Yeah. Um, but then the Mercedes car engine cars, then that's going to be a whole new ball game for us. I remember about two years ago bumping into Nico Rosberg in the assembly area of the festival. And uh, we'd sort of, I think, first introduced Nico to Goodwood in about 2005 when he was F1 test driver. And he sort of asked a similar question. He said, 
do you think in 10 or 20 years time there'll be an independent here running my 2014 or 15 Mercedes and I said well if if you look at how complex the technology is right here right now you probably a betting man would say no and he said exactly I just can't see the current Grand Prix cars the sort of turbo hybrids ever being privately run so which is a bit of a shame in a way but then let's see how technology I mean it does tend to it still catches us by surprise how quickly it sort of moves from being a cutting edge and needing a swarm of people to uh, to harvest it and keep it going to 20 years time perhaps being man in the street stuff so here's hoping but uh, it looks quite complicated looking at it from the outset so what's the most recent car that you guys currently run for a customer uh, well well there's a bit of a 50-50 on yeah. that because we've got, we have got a customer based in France that actually runs 2011 FW33, so Cosworth V8 powered car, Barry Kello, Maldonado race car, but they're pretty, and that's probably the interesting yeah. thing, they're actually highly self-sufficient. I mean, we sort of delivered the package, we had them over here for uh, various uh, education sessions and learning sessions in 2015 and uh, and sent the cars with a lot of equipment and relative to how often they run the cars we don't hear that much from them there'll be the odd question about brake wear for example uh, uh, yeah other little yeah. things like that but I mean there's that's one package unlike the ones we described a moment ago such as in the US mm. and the ones we're building now there's very very little I mean those cars don't come back for servicing a lot of it is all just undertaken in house but uh, yeah so 2011 FW33s is the sort of short answer to the after the long answer I just gave <laughs> <laughs> the um, another car that should be immensely complex so I'm hoping for a really in-depth story about how you you brought back to life the FW08B that's I'm fascinated by that car as many many of our readers and listeners are I'm sure and of course we we saw it it was out last year it was being I drip I kind of dropped you in on that one didn't I yeah I I sort of thought that all FW08s were interchangeable and and and, and, yeah. and the engine that, and the parent and the something to do with pump mounting isn't there so yeah. I gave you a lot more work than you planned on that one so yeah. hopefully he has got something he, he should be able to give you quite a long answer oh, yes. I kind of dropped I told him it would be simple and it wasn't when he actually took it apart it, only because somebody before told me it was simple. I'm only passing it I on. Think <laughs> the actual, let's say, the the monocoque and the front end is the same as an 08A or C. Yeah. Very similar. But obviously you have the six-wheel gearbox or the four-wheel drive. Um, and all the sump and the starter motor is different. They're all one-off. And we never made any spares, or Williams never made any spares. So it wasn't a case of, let's say taking the back end off, putting a good DFE in, because yeah. the sump and everything was made special just for that one car. So it was a case to take the engine out, get the engine checked over, get, get the engine rebuilt. The actual gearbox itself is in very good condition, um, and it was much more simpler inside than what we were expecting. I'd, I'd never pulled it apart, and so the guys downstairs, when we pulled it apart, it was actually very straightforward engineering. Mm. Um, but the suspension, everything, basically you just got an extra set of suspension on there. So it wasn't that difficult, but it, our biggest, let's say, challenge was making sure everything was okay because yeah. there are no spares. Yeah. The rockers, the, the lower wishbones, they're all one-offs. They're not the same as an 08A or, or a C. Mm. So, um, but everything passed, uh, their x-ray tests and everything. So 
Um, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you. It wasn't difficult. It was just a like a slow process. Okay. Because everything, everything, even the fuel tank is slightly different to the other 08s. I'll ask another question that I think might be <laughs> impossible to answer. Then would it have would it have won? Was that car? I would was that like top five to have think so, thought so. Yes. Um, the side pods are wider and longer, so you got much more ground effects. Right, right, yeah. um, traction coming out of the corners, probably twice as good. Aerodynamic, you got the rear wheels much smaller than those great big tires that they have on the other cars. So um, Keki did tell me once that. It was a really good car to drive. Yeah. Um, and I got the impression that he thought it was a race winner, possibly a race winner. Right. Where was it on weight and weight distribution? Um, Is it a bit overweight? As, it's, as it it's overweight as it because it was, a, it was a test car. Yeah. yeah, sure. So it was done just to prove the concept. Yeah. Um, Weight contribution, you'd have probably wanted to get a bit more weight forward. Yeah. Um, not much, yeah. but I'm not sure if you could have done it with an aluminium monocoque because sure. there is nothing that you can move forward. Yeah. Um, but um, weight-wise, you could see a lot of things on there that you'd, you'd make, <laughs> uh, let's say, lighter. Yeah. I think I heard that as... As we present it now, as it resides in the museum, yeah. it's probably only about sixty percent of the way through. Even though it was it was a working car, I think that Patrick said there was probably about, I guess that would yeah. mean forty percent more sort of ideas for it, yeah. and in terms okay. of the evolution of it, and I think it was sort of, inter it was pulled out from under him the rug mm, because yeah. I think yeah. it was literally banned overnight at a at a team meeting in terms yeah. of, I mean I. I like to think it probably would have been akin to a Brabham fan car moment. It would have turned up and it probably would have been quite devastating to its opposition. Mm. And then it may never have been seen again, which would add a, which, which in some ways would still, looking back on it with nearly 40 years, it would have been a nice sort of story, but we didn't quite get there. But I think towards the end of the program, there was sort of a, a data test using Paul Ricard as a medium, which was then home to the French Grand Prix and we used various forms of data including uh, a, a back to back wind tunnel test of the conventional model versus the six wheeled model and it was substantially quicker in terms of what mm. what Patrick said so mm. I think it, I think it pro had it have gone to a Grand Prix grid I think it would have been quite devastating. We did also have the little bit of, uh, I think this came from John Cad, our, our, our favorite old mechanic who used to actually look after all these cars that when Goodwood as a festival was still in its infancy and we as an F1 team were prepared to uh, indulge them and actually time attack on the hill. Nowadays, we just make a lot of noise and a lot of smoke, but try and be as slow as well. We don't even do that these days with the heritage cars, do we? But <laughs> when we had the contemporary cars there, we, uh, but I mean, uh, in 1994, I think Martin Brundle was there in the, uh, was it the McLaren MP49, the one and only Peugeot car, which was contemporary race car. And they were ahead of us in the queue to do a time attack. And they had laptops, headsets, tire warmers. And we had two guys in t-shirts and an air starter and a squirty <laughs> bottle. And legend has it that we went up the hill 1.2 seconds quicker than them, both guys time attacking. I guess perhaps even though it's longer wheelbase, a hill climb is sort of mm -hmm. really for traction. But then we told this story to Martin Brundle when he drove the six-wheeler for us last year, and he actually said, no, I was actually quicker. So, <laughs> so he actually has got his side of that story. <laughs> yeah. So 
so <laughs> racing racing drivers memories are, yeah. are, are yeah. notably feeble yeah, so, so we think we they were, were quicker yeah. in like a, in a car that was 12 years older and literally just had guys with t-shirts and he thinks he was quicker in a laptop tire warmer sort of headset mm. sort of car so uh yeah, but it was ver <laughs> it was very much version one then that that car. Yeah, was, Patrick yeah. Um, did tell me not long ago that they had actually had a sketch for a completely different rear suspension. Right before the as Jonathan says the rug was pulled out from underneath yeah. them. Yeah, um, and it would have been a single rocker system. Right, and right. instead of having the two rockers on each side to control it, he was talking about a single rocker controlling two wheels on each side right so they obviously had some let's say next step planned yeah. next, step, uh, next step weight saving plans. Yeah, yeah yeah that's um so you know that there was another development coming but it all got terminated what, what do you do with the temptation to make something better and quicker because that's in your that's, that's, that's in your blood that's not us that's 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 not <laughs> us you know we're 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 yeah trying to make the cars as they run you know so um if it takes it's it's like um let's just say the fw8 schrader valves for the tires um they don't make those anymore so we have spent nearly three weeks running around different places <laughs> trying to find the schrader valves yeah you know we're, we're trying to make them as they were so when you walk down in the museum you're looking at a 1978 car Seatbelts and like Jonathan says, seatbelts, fire extinguishers, fuel tanks are done to the latest spec. But everything else, we try and keep. Period. I mean, do do you buy ever get stuff from a resource such as eBay, for example? I mean, have you, is there anything you've actually found for any of the cars? No public a public forum like that. Not really. Um, we we have to fall in. Don't forget, we're Williams. Formula One team or part of it, and we can't have anything go wrong. So we can't just go to eBay and buy a front wheel or a bit of suspension and put on the car. It has to go through all the tests that the modern F1 car goes through. Right. Uh, even though it's 40 years old or 30 years old, it still goes through the same processes as what they use today yeah. before it goes on the car and we put it out on the track. Sure, you know we we can't afford to put a 40 year old car on the track and then sudden something break and be yeah. in the news because something failed. I bought a whole FW07 on eBay. Yes, it's down <laughs> there. It's over there. <laughs> we'll have to cut it's to that one. Yeah, it's over there. Yeah. It's That's over extraordinary. There. Yeah. It's, it looks, looks and very it's light. Still it's, yeah. it's still dirty. Yeah, it's lightweight FW07. It's fabulous. Yeah. Did, I mean, we're talking about um, the six-wheeler and things. The technology on the more modern F1 cars is incredibly sophisticated, incredibly cutting edge, but the regulations governing them are also very, very prescriptive. I mean, do you, and particularly you, Dickie, who was hands-on back then, I mean, do you kind of miss the days when people came up with very different-looking cars, when, when there was still the capacity to surprise when a new car was launched? Yeah, definitely. You know, there's that old saying, if a car looks right, it, it normally goes... Right, you know, the cars really, I'd have to say now in the last three three years, all the cars are beginning to look the same. You know, you, you go back, um, you only got to go down to Goodwood and you see cars that you'd forgotten about. And you think, did that really run? You know, yeah. Brabham Lobster Claw and, and stuff like the Fang car, you know, our six-wheeler. 
those things don't happen anymore. You know, they, they, they've tied, tied the rules up, and I can understand why they've tied them up, but you're just not going to get that one car in a million every now and again that comes out there and is something totally yeah. different. Jack, well, I'm going to I'm going to come to you now because you you mentioned in the office the other day that you, uh, growing up you were a Williams fan. Yep. What led that was was it the aesthetics of the car? Was it the? Was uh, it the, the I don't know. Uh, it would have been ninety five, ninety six. Mm-hmm. So Williams was yeah, it was winning. It was a winning British team, and the cars looked great. The livery uh, was. I know cigarettes for a what seven eight year old isn't <laughs> ideal, <laughs> but you don't smoke, so no. yeah. <laughs> it's the whole combination, isn't it? It's the package. The car looked great. The livery looked great. The drivers were British, even, um, which now is kind of irrelevant, isn't it? So that you look at Formula One now, and it's not the same. You don't have that same affinity, I don't believe. Um, but the cars, it's hanging up in the lobby, isn't it? And yeah. It looks yeah, the Rothmans car. Yeah, there's no, there's no reason you wouldn't support that car. <laughs> but yeah. it, but if, if you it go back to '78 and round there, all the cars look different. The Ferrari doesn't look like a Williams. The Willi- you know, the, the Williams doesn't look like a McLaren. They've all got their own shape. But it's, as you get to the more modern, the really modern stuff, they start to look the same. Noses obviously look very similar. Side pods are very similar. Um, but yeah. in those days, if you look at the Benetton compared to the Williams, you know, the Michael's, let's say, versus Damon's 96 uh, car, they don't look anything like each other. Mm. You know, they had their own their own style. Yeah. You know, each team had their own style. None of the cars look the same. Yeah, I think also, if you look back, look at the Walrus, the Walrus nose car. That's now sort of, it's a different car, but it's now looked yeah. back on. Quite fond of it, yeah. yeah. Sometimes, but some people love it. So yeah. <laughs> well, you should tell them the story about the BMW one. Yeah, it was, I mean, we, we sort of uh, we had an arrangement with BMW that at the end of each year, so it would have been six cars in total, but one would always go to the uh, to the BMW museum. And when we were planning at the end of two thousand and four, I said to Mario Tyson, I just said, "This is the car I'm thinking of," and he said does it have the walrus nose? And I said, well, no, because we built eight and only three of them survived because you actually had to modify the front bulkhead. But I said, because I've tried to find you, in 2004, the pickings of a car with rich history weren't as rich as we'd been used to the previous three years. And he said, no, I I want a walrus nose car. So BMW actually chose, actually elected to have a walrus nose car. And to this day, they have it. We've been working with them quite recently and they've sent us photographs of it. So they themselves chose to have it. Juan Pablo Montoya has the car that won that year's Brazilian Grand Prix, by which stage season finale we'd well, we'd well passed, uh, reverted to a conventional nose. But when it was dispatched, he said, could you put a walrus nose in the box? So he's actually got, <laughs> he's actually got a spare nose that won't actually fit sitting next to it. And if you go on, uh, if you go on some of the videos of his warehouse in Miami, I think in one of the, in one of the rooms there, the complete sort of... Uh, uh, like uh, treasure chests, you can just see it in there. You can just see this walrus nose. So uh, it's, it's yeah. quite strange because nobody liked it at the time. Mm. You know, nobody liked mm. it at the time. Yet now everybody wants it. Yeah. yeah did did Montoya ask you to put some burgers and bags of crisps in the box as well? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> can't quite remember. <laughs> I think I think he would probably say that he'd much rather buy those locally in Miami than have English quality burgers <laughs> arrive in a in a sea freight container. They'd be they'd be much more yeah. Unless he likes his burgers extra salty, going across in a sea freight container for a couple of weeks or something. So uh, <laughs> right, it's it's at this point where I'm going to ask Simon and, and, and Jack. I'm going to ask if you're looking for that perfect Valentine's gift Always. for each other. I think someone's got mine. If it's anything to do with cars and motoring, Mrs. Aaron won't be in the slightest bit interested, unfortunately. Uh, Jack, (laughs) does she think your 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 better half will be interested? I think so. Okay. Well, what we've got, and this is from our uh, partners at Mercedes Benz, is the Valentine's Drive and Dine package. Okay. So this includes an AMG one-hour driving experience, um, or a four-by-four one-hour driving experience. It's a two-course lunch. There's a spa treatment available as well. At the Brooklyn's Hotel. Spa the circuit or spa the place <laughs> yeah. where, spa where ladies the go to be pampered? It's that, yeah. Does Which that, one? Oh, the appeal? latter one. It's the latter yeah. one, yeah. No, I'm only up for the former. Okay, just you guys then, okay? <laughs> so, so it's an AMG one-hour driving experience or a four-by-four one-hour driving experience. A two-course lunch for two people. It's this spa treatment at the Brooklyn's Hotel. Um, and if you book by the 14th of February... Um, then you will have a fantastic day out on Valentine's. So you must go to Mercedes-Benz World website for more details. Um, And that's the plug over. Right, the FW15D. So in in my notes, I'm actually trying to trip you guys up now, but it's not going to be possible, is it? I don't (laughs) think I'm going to be able to trip you up. (laughs) So this was the passive car, right? Yes. Tell me about why this car is, 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 is an interesting car. And it tends to pop up whenever you're researching William's Heritage, the, the, the D. Yeah. I th- it's, it's one of two reasons. It's, it's either because Senna drove it or it's because it was the first car with all the gizmos taken off. Both. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely both. Yeah, yeah. It, was it the first car that... that um, drove first Williams that he he drew, well uh, not Where, apart uh, from the 80 of course yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah it was I mean when when he signed uh, uh, so from the time that he was our driver so we went into the winter testing which I don't think for him commenced really until January of 94 and the 16 didn't come online until February so a lot of the footage which we still see today which is from the because we also that period that you referred to, Rothmans, commenced that year, and there was a huge media launch that lasted for two or three days at Estoril. So a lot of the footage that is still referenced of, of him in our car is actually from that time. And we have quite a distinct version of it because he was quite uncomfortable around the steering wheel with a little bit of buffeting. He had slightly bigger steering wheels than what we designed for. And of course, the FW15 had been a car that sort of first came to life in the autumn of 92. So it, yeah, it, it had yeah. sort of been tailored around primarily Alan Prost and Damon Hill. So coming towards the car at the end of its life, mm. he uh, uh, he sort of had to, we had to like do some rather unusual modifications. We cut away sections of the top of the cockpit to make him a little bit more comfortable. Right. Yeah, just to get, just he was just ha- having a little bit of problem with, I think, just buffeting of his knuckles against the chassis walls. Right. But uh, it, it was the first car that he, uh, th- that, um, that he drove. I think both he and Damon in those very early days of FW16 thought it was actually uh, quicker. I mean, I think Damon, uh, well, Damon didn't tell me, but Damon told a colleague at the time that even though uh, in the opening round of 94 that Schumacher won for Benetton and Ayrton Mm -hmm. spun out whilst chasing him, and I think Damon eventually was second a lap down on Michael, I think Damon said, I would have won that in a 15D. 
I think they both sort of felt, and those, but of course you, you simply have to pursue with a car that you're, that actually has sort of the, uh, the longer term because it's a 16 race season over many, many months. But I think there was both of just little stories you hear from people at the time that the 15D, perhaps as you would expect, because it was a car again that we were very familiar with and 16 was in some areas quite a step, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's then, quite uh, a bit different. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, so it's. I didn't know though that it was that sort of uh, a. Yeah, it was it, that. It was that it, sort it of. It pops up when, really, when, when okay. you go really granular, yeah. which you kind of you kind of have to do. It's it's one that's talk, talked about. Yeah. Because ironically, does it run? Does it still? Have you? You still got that? No, one? we don't. Uh, our our museum example isn't uh, isn't a working example, sure. but it's uh, from our point of view, it's all there. But ironically, in the, so we've we've covered now two cars that never raced, six wheeler and fifteen D. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> well, the others were so successful. Yes, yeah, 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 interesting. Yeah, we're kind of yeah trying, trying to think where else we can go. CVTs next. Yes. Oh, CVT. Yes. CVT. Yeah. Let's talk CVT. Yeah. Okay, we can talk. Uh, oh, yeah. Honestly, uh, the, if there are questions or anything to go by, which we'll come on, on to a bit, we have a very technically minded audience. So, okay, tell us about the CVT era. Is that that's one for you, isn't it, Dickie? Uh, or I think is this where I look right? <laughs> how it came to life. I no. think. Well, I mean, my my understanding. What I mean, it was at it was at that time where we were really setting the standards of technology, and the background was the World Championships in '92 with the 14B and the 15C in '93. So cars bristling with technology which sort of became tagged, I think, driver aid, such as active suspension, traction control on 15C, but not on 14B. There were also braking systems, ABS. Was there another ABS, braking system? ABS, tricky brakes, tricky power and, steering. Uh, and my interpretation is that CVT was essentially the pursuit of something that Formula One sort of globally arrived at a decade or so later, which was seamless shift yep. to to eliminate the delay between gear changes. And you're probably only talking about a tenth of a second yeah. between gear changes, but trying to eliminate that. And uh, I think the idea was, as opposed to having a conventional sort of ratio layout in the yep. gearbox, so cog mounted, if you will, it was essentially the distribution arose from uh, a steel belt, steel belt driving cones. between two cones and essentially the circumference of the cones yep. represented or the radius of the cones represented the gearing you're not allowed to give too much away really i was actually well i i that that was i was done then but until i got told off but i was i can only backtrack now but that was pretty much what i've got to go on you've obviously seen the video up and down the airfield, we we took it to a couple of circuits. We actually did some start sessions with it with DC. Um, but at the same time, we were also doing our ABS system. Yeah. So I, I remember going to a test and doing at Silverstone, being there for two days and doing two laps. Because in those days, with the M MS DOS, they wanted to read what data they were pulling from the gearbox and the ABS system. So we'd literally go out do half a lap, come in, sit there for about two hours while the, the, the computer <laughs> people would look over the data and then they'd stand there and, yes, well, okay, we're going to give it another run. There was no explanation why we'd sat there for two or three hours. But, um, yeah, that's another thing to say that, you know, is missing from today's cars, innovation like that. Yeah. I mean, did you do enough with the CVT car 
to establish how much potential it had? Or I think they they'd done enough, but it it wasn't anywhere near race worthy when it when it was uh, cancelled uh, or banned. Um, but the potential was there to be a, a race winning item, actually. You know, for like Jonathan says, the the amount of time that you were gaining on on gear changes through the CVT, you add that up around a lap, and yeah. you know you're looking at like Jonathan says, uh, seamless shift gearboxes. Yeah. So in in those days, in eighty three, eighty four, that would have been like a big. Sorry, ninety. 1994. <laughs> it would have been like a big yeah, leap 15. forward. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of teams, when they found out that we were doing it, were quite glad that it was banned. Yeah, because of the cost involved in them. Cost involved, you know. We, I think we'd spent four or five years developing. Mm. Yeah, was it developing. Was, it was I think the, the belt was the, the hardest thing. What that, was that was the biggest thing. What was the belt made of? Was it a, a titanium? Super alloy. Yeah, titanium. Yeah. 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 It's... If you can imagine a stretchy watch strap, yeah, yeah, it's very similar to that. We've actually got one downstairs. Really? Yeah. Um, and it just twists and bends. It's yeah. it's about an inch thick, but it moves all over the place. It's very, it's a very nice piece of uh, engineering, even for back in '94 time. And this was at a point when the the RPM from the engine was. 18, yeah. 19, 20? About 16, 17, yeah. somewhere around yeah. the, the yeah. Renault engines. Yeah. yeah. But it's strange on the on the uh, engine noise when you watch yeah. the, the video, it, it sort of like just creeps up and 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 up. It just keeps going up. Yeah. Until you it gets to like 16, 17,000. But I mean, I would imagine that the, the costs involved on something like that, which was genuinely interesting 20 years ago, would be a fraction of what people are spending on for being brake cooling ducts nowadays, which oh aren't yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think we had uh, probably about six or seven people working on that gearbox, engineering-wise. Um, so that in its time, there was quite a few people, let's say, working on that one project. Mm. Extraordinary. I mean, I'm intrigued now. If, if you were asked to... Um or maybe you decided together that that car needed to um, to run again. Would, would you would you run and hide, or would you think that's that sounds like a, that sounds like a great project? It would be a great. Let's say it would be a great project to do, but I don't think enough people out there know about it. So, yeah. would it really be worth the effort we would have to put in to actually bringing it back to life? Yeah. Whereas the six wheeler, you know, people know about that. Um, FW14B, people know about that, you know, so, but the CVT was something that not many people actually knew about. Yeah. You know, when, when I take people around the museum now and I say, you know, there is a CTV version of this car, and they look at me like, yeah, what's a CVT? <laughs> it was also a collaboration as well, wasn't yep. it, with Van Dorn's transmission, so right. I think if, if in that eventuality you'd have to sort of understand what their capability would be, or rather mm. capacity would be to actually, similar to ours, to revisit something from 25 years ago. Uh, yeah. I mean, the car's actually on loan with, uh, well, to do with people who are involved in the project at the time. So okay. the car resides in the uh, Netherlands at the moment. So and I think it's been there for about 20 years. Right. 
about yeah, about ninety six, yeah. I think it went. So we haven't actually seen that car. I, no, no, that's not true. It came back here about five years ago for a bit of a restoration. So, yeah. but uh, we didn't sort of look at it from that point of view. It's more just yeah. presentation and maintenance that we had a good had had a good work through it in about two thousand and eleven. Yeah. We're going to jump into our reader questions now, if you if you don't mind. We have um, okay. We have a number of questions. The the Williams is is always um, ranks well on the website. Whenever there's a there's a blog or an article, there's usually a number. Well, in fact, there there always is yep. great responses, isn't there? Okay. I, I had one from Karun as well. Uh, yes, a asking about donuts. <laughs> what a question! <laughs> a question from Karun. Well, he wants to know when he can drive the CVT car. Here's mainly where are the where are the donuts? Where are the donuts? <laughs> well. This interview is not taking place at Western Aerodrome, so I don't yeah. quite know <laughs> no why, why he thinks there should be donuts. <laughs> yeah, um, it's is that a his rider. Does, he, d- does he demand donuts? Is that his? Um, no, it's <laughs> it, it, it get, uh, 2012, which is it, it, actually before Williams Herrick, we, we 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 sort of took an FW14B to to Western to test, and ever since then, to Western has been our go-to sort of place. And we had Valtteri Bottas drive it. So myself, Valtteri and Sophie, one of our communications girls, jumped in a car about an hour after the truck. And I suggested the idea of these very nice donuts called Krispy Kremes. <laughs> there's, another, there's another plug for you. And uh, Sarah yeah, Valentine yeah, I want them free. Them. Yeah, hey, they're listening. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and didn't quite know where to get them. I, I, I know. I now know Tesco's is another plug, and uh, <laughs> yeah, literally so, so drove drove Valtteri to about three sort of petrol stations. He could, uh, Valtteri was there to drive a Formula One car. I must thought actually I seem to be on some kind of like disorganised shopping trip, <laughs> and uh, so ended up at Tewestern with two boxes of donuts for all the mechanics. And now I'm simply not allowed to uh, be there without donuts. <laughs> And uh, despite the fact that I'm technically senior to the people actually giving me that order, <laughs> I'm still not allowed to turn up without donuts. And Karun's involvement is, is that his house in Brackley used to be about a mile away from the Tesco's. And on one very early to Western start where he was driving, I got to this Tesco's before the fresh donut delivery. So I called him and said, hey, in an hour's time when you're driving past, can you check in and see if there are donuts? And he turned up with the quantity, but also grumbling about how much they cost because he, <laughs> he was used to like 50p donuts and these are like £3.50 each or something. And uh, yeah, so that's sort of where the whole donut thing comes in on. It's nothing to do with spinning around, the more exciting spinning around and staining people's racing circuits with rubber. We'd be pleased to know that Krispy Kreme have actually opened some drive through donut places now in the UK. Yeah, I went, I went to one the other day, but it doesn't work as well as, you, as they would have you believe. Actually, I'm now not going to get the free ones now because I'm <laughs> criticising their drive-through thing. So, yeah, well, they appreciate the advice. Yeah, you, know, you, the, you actually have to get out the car uh, and press a button on the wall. It's not like McDonald's where they actually spot you coming. You actually have to like, ring the bell for attention. Right. Take a Formula One car through. Can I please have a Formula One car to yeah. go to Krispy Kreme drive-through? <laughs> Thanks, Corinne, for uh, distracting us there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Anthony Jenkins. Um, Dickie, Jonathan, have you driven some or all of the cars in the Heritage Collection? If not, why the hell not? (laughs) Do you want me to start? (laughs) Yep. Um, I've driven only the 11s, and that's only because in Detroit in the 86-87, the garages were not in the same place as the pits. And we used to have a special chip that you couldn't go above 60 miles an hour in. So you could drive them halfway around the track back to the parking area to work on them in the evenings. Um, It's quite a no-no to drive the Formula One cars. 
because the clutches are so small and everything, mm. you burn them out. So, and you don't want to damage anything. So, you know, it's it's not really going to happen. Jonathan, you can't tell me that at some point when you were younger, you <laughs> no. broke into the factory, you, you, you stole an FW11 and you had a little <laughs> quick run up the dual carriageway. I'm, I wish I could tell you that, <laughs> but unfortunately, no, I'm, I've not driven one. Maybe it's fair to say I'm yet to drive one. Karoon, and uh, uh, and also this, this came up in, in conversation with both Dario and Marino Franchitti over dinner a few weeks. They couldn't believe I'd yet to drive one. So uh, I think the idea is is that if ever the, if if ever there's like a, a a DFV car, we don't let anybody drive them. There you I mean, go. So I'm not driving <laughs> one. I have had a passenger ride in the back of a Minardi two seater at Donington, oh, wow. courtesy of Mark Weber. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's pretty much the same car that's now back up and running as part of F1 experiences. And that was uh, probably in some ways the better way to have it, to actually have somebody that can really exploit it and therefore demonstrate to you what it's all about. So mm. uh, probably that was, that, that was the better way to have the experience. Okay. Um, next question from 122MR. Was Nigel really that bad to be around outside of the car? No. No, no, no. I I worked <laughs> on his car in '85, uh, and he, let's say, in the garage was totally different the way he came across on TV. He got out the car and he would tell the mechanics what he wanted the car. You know, I want different springs. I want different roll bars. Then he'd go off with the engineer, and then they'd work out which springs and roll bars he'd want, and then come back. And it wasn't very often that he'd say he'd want to change this, this and this and the job list come back different. Um, I found and really a lot of racing drivers can actually take a leaf out of his book. He could get the team behind him. Every morning he'd come in and he'd say hello to every single person in the garage whether it was on his car or Nelson's car truckers, everybody. And then in the evening he'd go around and say goodnight to everybody. And it's amazing what that does to Team Morel. Yeah. Did he say hello and good night to Nelson as well, or just everybody else? I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might have been a wave behind closed doors. Yeah. <laughs> but um, for me, you could see the difference. Mm. You know, he got the, you know, even the guys working on Nelson's car at the time really liked it. And Nelson would probably walk at the back of the garage, just put his hand up and, and go out. Whereas Nigel actually made every single person he talked to every single person mm. just quickly morning okay everything all right and then go off and then do his engineering stuff but he actually came in the garage each morning and each night yeah say good morning good night and it goes a long way for the guys yeah. you know some of the drivers don't even come in the garage yeah it's interesting at the the motorsport hall of fame last year um we had patrick head as, as one of our guests and on stage he he said that he didn't doubt that when Mansell was in the car that anyone could have driven it quicker as well. And I think that's often part of the Mansell um, myth that maybe he, he wasn't actually quite as quick as a Senna or a Prost or whatever, but it was in that revelation last year I thought was, yeah, was, was really was interesting. Yeah, that was, yeah. Just didn't think anyone could. Is that something you would concur with? You well, agree? from yeah. my point of view, without a doubt, I mean, yeah. I think what I would pick up, what they used to say was exactly that, that when... When he was in the wi- when he was in your car, you had no doubt that the car was at its maximum, mm. and I, I just sort of think that as 
as time has passed, it's probably more the sort of personalities and the landscapes which shape sort of general opinion yeah. about those drivers. And uh, but I, I just think Nigel was. I mean, of the names you just mentioned, I, I mean, I think Nigel was as good as those guys. A very different approach, but I think how effective he was. And uh, it's 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 sort of it's sort of like that moment in tennis where the ball sort of hits the top of the net. There's that brief moment where it hovers and if it falls back, you lose. If it just drops over, you win. And I think that's really this, the difference between Nigel Mansell being the single world champion that he is and potentially a quadruple world champion. Yes. If you look at 86, 87, yeah. 91, I mean, there is... There's only a few, and, and the same with Fernando Alonso, are there 12 points over those three seasons that yeah. stop him being the five times world champion to being, or, or holding him at the two times world champion is, it's, it's quite similar for Nigel. And had that have been the case, you'd be talking about Ayrton as a double world champion or single world champion or Prost as a double world champion. Yeah. So it's sort of, uh, it's just, but, but so sometimes you have to just look a little bit beyond those tables as significant as they are because I think the guy was absolutely phenomenal I really really do yeah question from Ibra Malik um, I'm told in 1994 the Renault guys recorded the sound of the B194 to see if it had illegal traction control um, as Senna believed can you tell us which race test they recorded the Benetton sound and what your thoughts on the findings were Guessing, Dickie, that's uh, <laughs> is that still a hot potato? Um, yeah, that's one you need to ask Renault Sport. Um, yeah, we we were Ayrton was convinced that they were doing something, um, and we were as well. Um, and I know the the engine note was recorded, um, but that's what happened and everything. I don't know whether they took it to the FIA or anything. I don't know. Um, it was it was kept quite secret because um mm. yeah it's a bit of a <laughs> yeah i mean i i, I know I, it's re yeah. I know they recorded it you know we we, we still mm. record engine notes now yeah right. so i i can, got you can tell a lot and yeah. you can reveal a lot yep. from the audio yeah. trace yep. of the yeah i i got a uh a job as a gopher in 1994 for a Formula 3000 team called Magic that that year was running two cars in the international series and one car in the in the British and we did a couple of pre-season tests and we went down to Pembury sometime in March or April of 94 and we were there for two days on, on a Thursday Friday and Pembury began saying, uh, Benetton are here tomorrow because they need somewhere, and it must have been between Aida, the race at which Ayrton observed what he considered was traction control up when he was when he was forced to watch the race from uh, rather than be in it after the after the collision at the start, and Imola because it was the reason for the test was JJ Leto coming back after the to sort of replace Jos Verstappen for the third race because it was Leto's race seat, he'd injured himself pre-season. So we were at Pembury in our trucks, we were sort of camped out uh, on the pit apron and Benetton did turn up that night and went into the scrutineering hut in the centre. So apart from knowing there were two teams on site, you weren't sort of seeing each other. And then uh, on sometime on Friday, somebody from Benetton who I didn't know came down to us and said, what's your programme for the afternoon? Because we'd like to do some start practice and you're on the pit straight, so we'd like to do some start practice right in front of you. 
and we said actually we've got a bit of a slot and so obviously we all went, all went on the pit wall and watched it and I'm not going to say names but a, a, a magic mechanic then went on to be a hugely successful systems engineer for two Formula One teams both during their championship winning periods and he said to me just look at the tyre marks and listen he was educating me at traction control and then what really in hindsight rammed it home to me was an ex-Williams employee again nameless uh, who was at Benetton came down and watched and then saw me and very quickly scuttled back and they stopped start testing in front of somebody from Williams so yeah I, I've never told that in public <laughs> before but it was 20 plus years ago so, mm. and there's and there's enough people actually saying that the car was equipped with traction control for me to not feel to me not be concerned about that story sort of being out there but yeah I do remember that day at Pembury and uh, I do remember it literally being as close as that road is out there just doing start practice in front of us not realizing there was somebody from Williams right there and uh, yeah. I do remember that so incredible yeah. um, Peter Bukov Peter Bukov can from Peter from Canada thanks Peter <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> hello Dickie and Jonathan how how well did the rear suspension on the 94 Williams work mechanically was it tricky to set up with the springs and dampers, did it need to run Wi-Fi relatively stiff? No, so 16. So the one with 16. the rear was so low that the top wishbone housed oh. the drive shaft and became like an, a rearing ele- a lower rearing element. It was it was tricky to set up. Um, that was let's say one of the one of the hardest things about the 16 was um, the actual setup. Um, but once we found, let's say, the area to run the car in, it was just like any other car. Um, but yeah, we, we struggled trying to find, let's say, an area that we could run in to start with. We didn't find it in testing with a, with a 16. Um, and it was probably about four or five races in before, let's say, the sweet spot to run the car in ride height-wise and, and suspension settings. If, if you look around race four or five, it yeah. starts to come on song. Um, and I think that was probably because it was such a big change from FW15 to 16 that we didn't actually spend enough time testing the car. Mm. I remember talking to a, a Williams engineer in period who said that um, that thing should have been nowhere near pole position for the first three races. And the Williams it, engineer. Mm. Okay, yeah, there's somebody from Williams yeah. said that um, you know by rights it shouldn't have been on pole. Uh, but mm. and sort of, um, oh, your, your your recollections might be different. Yeah, no, I I think let's say the car was there or thereabout. It wasn't perfect, um, as in you know finding that sweet spot. Um, I think that took us a little while. You know, if if you look at the um, sixteen, the top wishbone, as Jonathan says, actually surrounds the drive shaft. It's that low. Um, and there's an awful lot of, uh, how can I put it, suspension movement, toe change and stuff, you know, and it was just trying to find that sweet spot to uh, to run the car in, and I don't think we had enough time testing, you know, to, to say, right, this is the area we run it in. You know, I, I don't think there was the computers and the manpower like we have in the wind tunnel at the moment that say, right, this is your ride heights and this is where you run the car between there and there, and that's it. You know, it was still a lot of it was still done on, on driver um, talking to the engineer and stuff. 
I guess it comes back to where we were a couple of minutes ago, not wishing to be controversial again on the on traction control, but then what what was the appropriate yardstick from that period of time? Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, because the yardstick car was the Benetton, but as we've as as we're nowhere near the first people to openly discuss, was it an op- was it an appropriate and fair yardstick? Or should or should we really have been looking at perhaps the Ferrari and the McLaren? And I think the Ferrari was sort of mixing yeah. it in there. And I guess where was Damon generally qualifying? I mean, Damon was question. Damon mm-hmm. was generally qualifying about fourth, wasn't he? I think he yeah. was fourth in Interlagos. Was he fourth in Aida? And he was. Think, I think I, I think literally weren't our grid positions for the opening three races exactly the same? Like pole yeah. fourth, pole fourth, pole fourth. Yeah, and, and you, so and you've only got to look in Damon. Yeah. you know Damon's mm. position. Let's say yeah, and the other. Here, yeah. That was where the car yeah. was, and where the other Damon ben. was. Yeah. So fourth on the grid, or being pole on the grid, yeah. I think the car had the right to be there. Yeah. So you know, I'd like to think yes, mm. there was a traction control or something on the Benetton. So let's mm. rule those out. Where do we stand now? Mm. So you know, on the front two rows, the car would have been there. Okay. We, <laughs> I think we've answered some questions, but I need to name check um, some of our readers here because I think we've answered. Some <laughs> questions. Uh, Ricardo okay. Toccato, Ibsi, Jacobs, and I can't pronounce the rest of it, Nick Mitchell, and uh, Gordon Hill. Um, I have one more question because you mentioned Keki Rosberg earlier on, and Keki's a, a big hero uh, among, among our readers. And we have um, a question from, and it's a simple, it's a Matt. Hello, thanks for being on the podcast. Um, do you have any good stories about working with Keki Rosberg, Matt from South Korea? This will be our. This is our last one. So nobody's listening by this one. So you can say anything, <laughs> any, anything you like. To be honest, uh, <laughs> that's a joke. I've got the the cigarette one from Brazil with John Reardon. I haven't heard that one. So oh. you, you I don't know if you'll be able I've to got, do this. It's, so not, it's not live. So okay, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. it's all about cigarettes. So. Keki comes up with, this is an 80, 85 I've got two. in Brazil. <laughs> Keki comes up and is, do any of you smoke? And John Reardon puts his hand up, yeah, I'd smoke. He's, he said, oh, do you mind if I pinch a cigarette? Mine haven't turned up yet. So uh, John says, no, they're in the top of the toolbox. So mine, Keki, m- mine haven't turned up yet? Yeah, what is it? That's, that's Keki's cigarette. It's like Ocado or something. Yeah. Yeah. So he, <laughs> like, he takes <laughs> one cigarette. Out, the, out, out of his packet, walks off. About an hour later, Keki comes back and he's got two shopping bags full of Marlboro cigarettes. <laughs> so obviously the Marlboro man's turned up. Or a car day. So John, <laughs> John, John's thinking, I'm going to get 200 cigarettes here for just giving him one. Not Keki. He breaks open the 200 pack, <laughs> takes out the 20, and he thought, I'm still doing well. One for 20, that ain't bad. No, Keki undoes the pack, <laughs> takes the one cigarette out, puts it back in and says, thank you, and walks off. <laughs> and he must have about 2,000 in his, bo- his bags. Well, he, he, he probably needed them all for that day, yeah. didn't he? That was, yeah. that was just his daily. Yeah, <laughs> He's the only driver I know that ever smoked on the grid. Wow. You have, a, have a cigarette on the grid. After the, he's taken the car to the grid, mm. get out the yeah. car and then have a cigarette just before he puts his helmet on. He's like, <sighs> okay, let's go. And then put his helmet on. 
Well, I've got a photo of the car you were talking about going completely off Williams, the yeah. the Tiger Florio winning RSI. I've got a photograph of one of the race pit stops and the guy with the fuel dump churn smoking. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. No, he's in his mouth and there's a fuel dump <laughs> churn going into the race winning RSI and cigarettes. So, but the fuel you were using back in the mid '80s wasn't exactly uh, um, it was fuel, normal force. Uh, uh, what do you mean the toluene? No, that's that's the elevens. That's the turbo yeah. stuff. That's yeah. toluene that's stuff. Yeah, toluene. Um, I think it was like um, just good force. Star right. for the Cosworths. Still pretty flammable, though, I guess. Oh, if you're most fields are pretty <laughs> flammable. <laughs> um, and then going back to Keke, so what, one of uh, one of the one of the Peter. I mean, we've sort of been greatly privileged through forty years of Williams, forty-one now. Just so many just incredible people that have come through this team and just made a contribution. But there was a chap that my father and Patrick and probably you and I were very fond of, Charlie Crichton Stewart, very charismatic, suave guy that did a lot of our sort of team liaison marketing, whatever you'd call it, in the early eighties. And he and Keke became very, very close. And you could always tell when Charlie was impressed because he would say to my dad and Patrick, I tell you what, chap, he's bloody quick. And Charlie was the one dispatched as being sort of the senior statesman at Keki's first test to try and decide what on earth we were going to do to replace sort of the god in Williams that was Alan Jones yeah. at the end of 81. And that was a big part that sealed the deal. So Charlie and Keki remained sort of uh, pretty close. And... Uh, Many years later, probably back in the mid-90s, given the car we're about to talk about, they were in Keki's apartment in Monaco. Charlie went down to spend some time with him, and they were, they got talking about road cars, as, as blokes do. And Keki said to him, what are your favourite road cars? And Charlie said, well, I've just seen in a magazine some press shots of the new Ferrari F355, and it's absolutely beautiful. And Keki said... I got one. It's downstairs in the garage under the apartment. And Charlie's like, no, no, no. So they go down there, and there is a bright yellow Ferrari 355. And Keki says, ah, oh, let's go get a coffee. So he spent for the next 20 minutes, they literally were tearing it around Monaco, sideways, <laughs> wheels spinning. After about 20 minutes, therefore, the next sort of caffeine and nicotine fix was needed. So Keki was like, where do we park? And he spotted a parking space down a street, but it was one way against him no matter what, drove about 20 yards the wrong way down a, 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 this one-way street, slammed the 355 into a parking space, got out and was wearing cowboy boots, Levi's, <laughs> baseball jacket, mirrored aviators, lit up a cigarette. As he was doing so, a policeman came up and said, Mr. Rosberg, we do appreciate our, our, our famous residents, but we do ask that you, that you tone it down. And he, and, and he went to Charlie, he went, Shit, I hate it when people recognise me. And Charlie went, what the hell do you mean? You hate it when people recognise you. Yellow 355, you know, look, look, just look at you. You look like an extra out of Top Gun. And she was like, I hate it when people recognise me. And it's just like, you know, just don't around. Did, yeah, did you ever see his boat? No, 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 I know. The pink. Uh, oh, pink, pink boat? Pink speedboat. No, I never saw Name that. of it? Wet Dream. I don't want to be recognised. I hate it when people recognise me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I, I, we are going to have to wrap it up there, I'm afraid. But um, thank you so much, no, no. Um, Jonathan and Dickie. 41 years, extraordinary um, history and of Williams. And it's, it, it's clear it's in um, safe hands. And if anyone's um, listening or watching this, please come and visit. It's an extraordinary experience. And um, you. if you are 
if you're at any of the, the big events this year as well, maybe you'll see Jonathan and Dickie as well, and hopefully we'll see some of the cars running too. So thank you. Thanks and donuts gets you places. <laughs> yeah. If you want to come backstage. You heard it here. Yeah. Do you think there's a Krispy Kreme sponsorship association maybe with the... Just for heritage, not think? for those F1 charlatans. Just for, no, just, yeah. heritage. Just, just for heritage. Yeah, yeah just go. for heritage. So. Yeah, heritage donuts. Heritage well. donuts, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's gone off, I think, a heritage donut. Yeah, I think... It's nice to end on a random note. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. This was a motorsport uh, podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz, and I have to thank Jack. Thanks for your time, Jack. Simon as well. And sure. Alan Hyde, who makes us all sound absolutely fantastic. So thank you, Alan. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at the next uh, podcast. Thank and you very Amy. Much. And Amy. Amy? There you go. Oh, hello, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to Amy, too. What do you think of when someone says the word used? Old-fashioned? Out of tune? A bit scratched, something past its best. Chances are you're not thinking of a Mercedes-Benz, and certainly not one of the latest models. Think Mercedes-Benz approved used. Suddenly, there's a lot more meaning to that little word. Visit your local retailer to find your used car today, and you'll see what I mean. Mercedes-Benz approved used. Used, but not what you're used to.